1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each he is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To other, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the work of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between the Spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ in individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, or do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word together. This sermon is really a continuation of last week's sermon about the Holy Spirit. And in last week's sermon, I quoted this From J.I. Packer, who says the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work as is in a complete fog as to what work the Holy Spirit does. And so at least some of us are in a fog, maybe not all of us. And my goal or my aim was to create some clarity. And so I was trying to do three things. One, answering the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And we talked about that last week. And the second is in that he is a divine person, not a power. And then consider the primary role of the Holy Spirit, and we answered that really by Jesus' words in John 16, and that is to declare truth about Jesus and to bring glory to Jesus. The main role of the Holy Spirit is for you and I to be able to see Jesus more clearly. And third, and finally, we will look this week at the gifts of the Holy Spirit by looking at chapters 12 and 14. Now, I want to try to attack or tackle this important but somewhat divisive subject by doing a couple of things. One, I want to offer some general and confident observations. So I want to make two or three observations, and I feel fairly confident that probably all of us are going to have pretty good agreement on these things. They're fairly easy to see in the text, and I wouldn't consider any of them particularly divisive in any way. And then I want to offer some specific and less confident observations. And so on the less confident observations, I'm not... uh, Less confident that God isn't saying something that's truthful. I'm less confident in my ability to to mine it out. And then you all have different experiences, and there's probably some pretty good likelihood that we're going to end up still being in the same church, but just a little different view of what these observations are. Because a lot of these things, um, when you read about them, you have some very bright people who get on different sides of of the 
coin, but we're all in the same coin together. So let's begin with some general and confident observations. Chapter 12, verse 11 says this, all these, all these things, all these gifts that he's listed out here uh, in these previous verses, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so one observation is the giver of the gifts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who initiates and gives salvation. So we talked about that last week, uh, that it's it's incorrect to think of salvation as some kind of two tiered event that you get saved and then you get the Holy Spirit. So you get like you get into the kingdom, but then you get the power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The power is getting you into the kingdom. That's the power. And everyone who gets into the kingdom comes through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible that, and it's not possible, it's, it's certain that through our lives we need a greater portion of the Holy Spirit to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not like we need a second-tiered kind of event. We talked about that some last week. Secondly, the Holy Spirit, brings out, the, the Holy Spirit that brings salvation also brings gifts. And he brings gifts, you see that in verse 11, to each. So everyone here that is a Christian, everyone here who's a disciple, everyone gets some kind of gift. And the, the word in the Greek for gift is charisma. So that's where we get the word charismatic. So if you're somebody who says, I'm a charismatic or they're a charismatic, it comes from this particular Greek word. And what they would be saying perhaps is something like, well, they really believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So they're charismatic. Now, we don't really use it in that same, in the way, the biblical sense, because in the biblical sense, everyone's a charismatic. I don't know if you realize that if you're a Christian here, you're a charismatic. That means that all that means is the Holy Spirit has invaded your life and brought you into the kingdom of light from the kingdom of darkness. And he has gifted you in some particular way. So every believer has a gift. And then we also notice in the same verse, the Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. So not everyone receives all the gifts. It's a, it's this picture of a body and lots of people have different functions, but there's no one person or one. There's no one person that has every gift. And certainly there's no one gift that everyone receives outside of salvation. So that's important to note, because particularly in the Pentecostal uh, beginnings down in the 1900s, their idea was that when you got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you would know you got the baptism of the Holy Spirit because then you would speak in tongues. So in the beginning of their theology, and many, many of them have moved away from that, their thought was everyone would be able to manifest this particular gift. And I think it's painfully obvious from reading the, the end of the chapter When Paul says, is everyone given these gifts? And he doesn't answer. It's just understood. The answer is no, not everyone's given every any particular gift. But I'm sort of getting ahead of myself there. Second confident observation in verses four through six. There are a variety of gifts. I know that because it says there's a variety of gifts. So that's a confident observation I have. I have a keen eye for the obvious when I'm reading through my Bible. And then then beginning in verse four, 
You know, Paul says, hey, there's all this variety of gifts, variety of service, variety of activities. And then like a good preacher, he needs to bring in an illustration so that the people can understand what he's talking about. And he brings us in this illustration of the human body. There's one human body, but the body is made up of all kinds of parts that that are interconnected, but they don't necessarily look the same or have the same function. And. And Paul uses this particular illustration to, to target a particular problem in the church at Corinth. And I know it's sometimes hard to transport yourself back to the first century and think like what the people at Corinth did. But try to use your imagination and try to understand that the, the particular problem inside the church was that there was pride and boasting and the pride and boasting created division. Now, I know you'll have to stretch your imagination to imagine that happening in a church. But inside this church, there was pride and boasting. And this pride and boasting was sort of shearing off different groups. And now they were trying to say, well, I'm doing this or I follow this or I'm better than you. And that was a main problem that Paul's trying to address throughout the whole context of the letter. And so as, as he's going through the letter, he's understanding that inside this church, there are insiders and outsiders. Inside this church, there's one group that follows this guy and one group that follows that guy. Inside the church, people are labeled, they're being categorized, they're being revered, or they're being diminished. That's all happening inside. And so Paul does an excellent thing, and you can read through this later in chapter 12, 14 through 26. He he takes on sort of both groups or both halves, as you would. The first thing, the first group he addresses, and I would say he rebukes, are those who might think of themselves as inferior. So they see themselves, yes, I'm part of this body, but I just got one tiny gift or my gift seems insignificant or inconsequential compared to somebody else's gift. And so there's this sort of poor me internally focused. And he says this, because an I, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. You can't say that. We can't have all eyes in the body because then we don't have a body. We have an eye. And so we need an eye and we need a body that has an eye. But if you're not an eye, you can't just say, well, I don't have that gift. So I'm sort of small or insignificant. So he he tackles that group and then he turns in 21 through 26 and rebukes the other group who's saying this in a superior way. The eye cannot say to the hand, well, I don't have any need of you. And so you see how he's tackling both of that. And do you see the problem that's common in both groups? Both groups are thinking about themselves too much. They have the same problem. They're coming to a different conclusion. One group's thinking of themselves and saying, I'm not significant enough. And one group's looking at themselves and saying, I am significant. But the real problem is the same root. They're thinking of themselves too too much and not thinking of other people and not thinking of Christ. So they're sharing that same problem and Paul's addressing that. So we need to just absorb from that to, to be careful just to not be thinking of yourself too much. Whether that's too little and inferior or it's too much and superior either way. Uh, drags you away from the purpose of the gifts. Third, confident observation. Verse 7, the the primary purpose of the gifts are for the common good. You see that in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
The entire context of the three chapters is about building up the body. In chapter 14, verse 12, it says this, Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, this, this group was, they're hungry after these gifts, and it's a good thing to be hungry after the gifts. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. Look, look for ways, look for gifts that are building up this whole body, not for things that are just building up yourself. Ed Clowney, in his excellent book on the church, writes this, The gifts granted are not for their own sake. Their presence does not support pride or justify envy. When the gifts of the Spirit are detached from the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, chapter 13, they become distracting noise, attracting attention, but accomplishing nothing. When the gifts of the Spirit are detached from the fruit of the Spirit, then they're not worth anything. Or they just become distracting noise, or they gather attention to focus on yourself. One final uh, observation about the gifts that people display, and this comes from Matthew 7, from the words of Jesus. And this is a warning for each of us when Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, do we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then he will say to them plainly, I never knew you. And so we need to understand that the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us are, are tools for ministry, not necessarily a measure of maturity. Gifts are tools for ministry. You can't look at somebody and say, well, they're really gifted, so they must be super mature spiritually. That may not be the case. They could be very immature. And then there's the obvious warning that the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the rest, they're a better measure of spiritual maturity. When you're looking for the spiritually mature person, you need to be looking for the person that's displaying the fruits of the Spirit, not necessarily the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, so those things I think we could all agree on and have pretty good confidence in those observations. And let me move now to the uh, specific but less confident and more controversial observations. Chapter 12, verse 28. Let's back up to 27. And now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. First observation about, we can't talk about all these because it, they, they, they deserve more time. So I'm just picking out a few. The first uh, apostle. The word in the New Testament uh, in the Greek can have different meanings. So when you see the word, it doesn't necessarily always mean the same thing. So it could mean just messenger or minister. So there's a broad sort of application of apostle that you could you could say, well, I'm an, I'm an apostle, meaning I'm just a messenger or a minister. So it can be used in that way. But I think in this particular context, 
uh, Paul is is circling around a very definite group of people, a very specific group of men who had followed after Jesus and had witnessed his resurrect death and resurrection. And he's saying there's a particular group that Jesus is using as the foundation of the church. They are apostles. It's obviously the 11 disciples and then a few other people, including Paul, would have this mantle, would have this title of apostle. And they formed the foundation of the church in a unique way. When the last apostle died, that would have been the apostle John in all likelihood, then that office or that gift ceased. So we wouldn't have apostles today in the same way that I think Paul is using that word in this particular context. Second, prophets. Now this is a sticky, sticky one. So you'll have to listen and think carefully. I think we could say for sure everyone in Orthodox Christianity considers the Bible to be the Word of God. And I think we can say that most people think of the Word of God as closed. Sometimes you hear the, the word canon, the canon. That means measuring stick. And so we, as Christians, we are measuring ourselves against it's straight, and we're measuring our crooked lives against the canon. And so I think most of us would say or consider that the canon is close. So we're, we're no longer adding books to Revelation. We're not sliding pieces of paper behind Revelation that is something that we heard or some impression or some letter or some vision or some prophecy or anything else. We're not, we're not sliding anything into the Word of God. It's a closed Word. So no matter what we may think, uh, nobody's trying to add to the authority of the Scripture. And so some read this word prophecy, and they take to the position, since the canon is closed, then prophecy has ceased. Because most of the time they think of the word prophecy in terms of the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel. And so they would just say, well, that was a gift, and now that gift has gone away or ceased because the book is closed and there is no more Prophecy. So Richard Gaffin explains his position in this way. When you think of prophecy today, you think of it as a spontaneous, spirit-filled application of Scripture. More or less a sudden grasp of some uh, of the bearing Scripture has on a particular situation or problem. So when you think of prophecy from Richard Gaffin's point of view, what you would say is I'm in this dialogue or I'm in this situation and I have some, some sort of sudden grasp of Scripture that applies to this particular position. I don't have any new information. I don't have any new revelation. I'm just taking what's been revealed and I'm applying it to myself. I'm applying it to a situation. And maybe we can call that prophecy in that sense. A spontaneous, spirit-filled application of Scripture. A much broader definition of the word prophecy is given by Wayne Grudem, which many of you have heard me recommend his systematic theology book. And Wayne Grudem is an Orthodox Christian, and he believes that the canon is closed. So however he would describe what he's going to describe in prophecy, none of these guys are trying to stick anything in the Bible and make it like that. But his definition, much broader Then the first one is this. Listen carefully. Telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. So when Wayne Grudem and others read and they read this particular gift prophecy, they're defining it as 
telling something God has spontaneously brought to your mind. Now, when I read that definition, my first feeling is nervousness. I get nervous. And the reason I get nervous is because of my experience. Because I've had people, and I'm certain many of you have had these same people, probably not the same, I hope not the same exact people. But they come up to you and say, well, God told me. And it feels like they're adding to the canon. I mean, the way they say it, it just feels like, you know, God said John 3.16, and he also said what I'm about ready to say right now. It has that kind of force, or it has that kind of feeling. Whether they're trying to portray that or not, it does come across that way sometimes. And so all kinds of red flags go up when I hear that kind of statement. But because I have this personal experience that leads me to think, gosh, well, either I've heard what you say and I flatly reject it as untrue, or I heard what you say and I catalog it and what you say doesn't come true. And so that gives me cause for concern. It may be that regardless of the definition, if we held to the pattern from Deuteronomy to test a prophet, remember that testing if someone says God told me it doesn't come true, what happens to that person? They get stoned. So I think we could eliminate a lot of God told me if we just sort of held on to that Old Testament command. But we're, we won't go there today. Um, but, I, but I get nervous. Uh, and let me just give you some examples. I was in a church and the preacher from the pulpit said, to the congregation this. God told me to tell you to use sticky notes. Well, when I heard that, I thought, well, that's a, it's a good idea to use sticky notes. And it was in reference to trying to remember promises of God, and you should use sticky notes and put them on your car, put them on your mirror or something like that. And I think that's a wonderful idea. I think it's a wonderful suggestion. It might be a super helpful suggestion. But I flatly reject that God told him to tell him to tell the people to use sticky notes. So I think it gets confusing when somebody says, I have an impression or I have a thought, and then they sort of attach God to it in a way that I don't really think that's what happened. You may have had a similar experience. A woman visited Christ Community Church a number of years ago, and she filled out a yellow card, and she got a phone call from me saying, I'm glad you were here, and it's her and her husband. We had some conversations about different ministry things they had been involved with, and the the conversation was coming to a close, and she said, well, Pastor, I'm just feeling like I'm getting a word from the Lord right now. And so I wasn't about to hang up from a word from the Lord, and she, it was coming to her for me. And so she just, I feel like God wants me to tell you, and she just gave me this prophecy. And so I thanked her, and I didn't think it would come true. And it did not come true. And so you've probably had some similar experience. You just sort of get in this awkward conversation. You can't sort of close it down. So you, you nicely say, and I mean, who knows? It could be. But you probably have enough catalog that they just don't happen. So when Wayne Grudem says, telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind, that makes me nervous. If 
Finally, I was listening to John Piper speak on the work of the Holy Spirit this week in preparation, and he gave this story of a personal nature. He was actually preaching on this same topic. And so after the church, I guess he was down front, and a woman came up front to him and said, well, I feel like I've received a prophecy that I should give to you. And his wife at the time was pregnant. And so I believe it was a woman came up and said, it's a very difficult prophecy, but I feel like I need to deliver it to you. Your wife will give birth to a baby girl, but your wife will die in the process. Now, imagine you've just you've just talked on this subject. And this person comes in and feels a burden to tell you this information. And what are you supposed to do with that? You go home and tell your wife? No. But, but I mean, you can imagine the burden. I don't remember the difference in time, but two, three months, however long. He's, he's sort of living with this prophecy. And his wife gave birth to a boy, and his wife is alive today. And so you can have experience that sort of jades your understanding of prophecy. And I understand that that experience can easily drive you to the conclusion, no, the canon is closed and possibly somebody can apply the word of God to my life. And certainly they do. But anything that sort of falls outside of that makes me nervous. And so I sort of reject that. And I understand that. But I want to say that I think there's a way the word prophecy, even though when I hear the word, it sounds like Jeremiah, Isaiah. That's how I hear it. But I think in the New Testament, there's a way the word prophecy is used in the scriptures that seem to indicate that there can be words from the Lord in a context that don't make them equal to scripture. And I can point to just a couple of verses Here in that regard, chapter 14, verse 29, Paul says this, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Well, when we read from the book of first Corinthians or we read from Jeremiah, we don't weigh what it says. We trust what it says. But I think Paul is saying, hey, there's going to be some folks that are saying some things and we need you to weigh in, especially the elders are given that charge to weigh, to to give some discernment to what has been said. And and possibly it's a way the Lord could speak through a person into a community, into a particular life that's not scripture. It's human words, it's human thoughts, but somehow God could use it in a way and then we'd have to be discerning. We'd have to weigh what is being said. Second verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul says this, Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. So there's prophecies happening and people maybe have had some negative experiences. So I just stand away and I sort of treat all that with contempt. And he's saying, hey, don't treat that with contempt. Instead, what does he say? Test everything and hold on to what is good. So it's possible that some things are said and they need to be tested and some of them aren't held on to. So what I'm trying to suggest here, and I realize I'm opening up a big old can right now, uh, that there is a way that I think the Bible uses the word prophecy that's not meant to be scripture. It's meant to be some other kind of sense that the God, that the Lord is moving and it needs to be tested. It's not something we don't test first Corinthians, but we would test something that I would say 
in some sort of experiential way. So let me see if I give you some examples for that. So that might create some more clarity. I'm suggesting that there's room for God to speak in a way that builds up, encourages, and forms, yet it doesn't have the weight of Scripture. In the summer of 1986, I was living by, in a 60-by-10-foot trailer held together by insects, mostly roaches. And I was spiritually floundering. I wasn't a part of a church. I didn't regularly go to church. I would take some time to find my Bible somewhere in my 60-by-10-foot trailer. And I was really sort of reeling spiritually from, uh, for a, no, a number of reasons and in sort of a, a desperate cry, prayer, uh, out of confusion, that all the sort of paths I had tried ended, ended in cul-de-sacs and dead ends, I cried out to God, God, what do you want me to do? And that was the first time I really had said that, at least in a genuine way. And in a way that wasn't audible, but was distinctive, and really completely out of my framework of anything I'd been doing, he said, Paul, I'm ready for you now to do ministry. And I remember standing in this little trailer thinking, <laughs> come on. I mean, that's bad pizza I had last night or something because it's not that's not in even in the category. God, I would struggle to find my Bible. I'm not a part of a church. I really haven't been a part of a church since I left maybe middle school. I, I don't qualify I, that. Let's just try almost any other path. Uh, but I had a real sense that the Lord was saying, no, you cried out. I've been waiting on you patiently and I've been waiting to get you involved in ministry. And so I found the only person that I knew that was in ministry that knew me was my old young life leader who was in Greensboro at the time. And we I called him. I hadn't seen him in several years. And he said, great, come have lunch with me. So I drove from Myrtle Beach to Greensboro. And the first question he asked is, why are you here? So what am I supposed to say at that moment? God told me. You see, see, now I'm on the I'm on my nervous side of my own experience. I'm using this language that makes me nervous. And I don't think it was a revelation like it should be added to the Bible. But I don't think I was mistaken in what God was really leading me to do. And so I said, I feel like God's leading me to be in ministry. And you're the only person I know that's in ministry and knows me. So that's why I'm here. But I really sensed that it was the Lord speaking in a very unique way. Two summers ago, the summer of 2012, I was on a sabbatical. And I'd been the pastor of the church here for 10 years. And I was turning 50. And so all those things sort of culminate in a moment of trying to ask God, is there, you know, I've been down this road. You want me to stay on this road? You want me to go on a different road? And so I'm asking the Lord to speak in some way on the time that I was on my sabbatical. And I'm sitting, and I've said this story before, I'm sitting in this small little earthen church. Earth, uh, dirt floor, dirt walls, and a tin roof. And I'm, I'm just sitting there, and, and I'm going to give the sermon. So I give the sermon. There's maybe 30 or 40 of us in this room. It's pretty hot. And there's a dump out back. It smells bad. 
And I give this sermon, and then after I sit down, one of the elders stands up, basically to thank the team that's come from America to Kenya to preach and to do some ministry there. And then in what may not have been unusual to him, but was unusual to me, uh, he wanted to address me directly. So he just turned towards me and he, he said, I want to thank you for coming today. You obviously have a fire in your soul, and we are so glad you came from America to give us your fire. Now, you must go back home and keep giving that fire to your people. And that sounded like the Lord speaking. It couldn't have been any more clear to me when I was sitting there. I felt like God just stood up in this black man from Kenya and said, Paul, you need to hear this directly. I can't. You're not the kind of person I can get around. You, you need the direct approach. Now, what am I supposed to say about that? God told me the Kenyan pastor told me. I mean, you see where I get a little sideways, even with myself. Now, was that John chapter 3, verse 16? No, it was not. But see, I think in the New Testament, there's ways in which you could think of prophecy in a way that's not adding to the Scripture, but the God, the God of the universe is still speaking in some way and moving His people in ways. And does it need to be weighed? Yes. Could it be wrong? Yes. Should you humbly come and say, I have some sense that God is telling me or something. See, some sense is, I, look, I'm a bad receiver sometimes, so I don't know. And so that's what I think about prophecy. Okay, so now that I've opened up a big can, let's get to the next big can, the speaking in tongues. I guess if you're having lunch with me, I think a few of you are. We're going to have quite a lively discussion today. Uh, Speaking in tongues, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost came. So what happened is 50 days after the the Passover is Pentecost, thus its name, Pentecost, 50 days. And this is called the Festival of First Fruits. So it's this big event where all these pilgrims come back into Jerusalem. They're from all over the surrounding regions and nations. And at this particular point, that's when the Holy Spirit came. Chapter 2, verse 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and divided tongues of fire appeared to them. This is the, the disciples and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. Now, pretty much all Bible scholars and acts agree that what is happening here and the other events in Acts about speaking in tongues, is they're actually speaking human languages that are just unknown to them. See, there's all these pilgrims in the city, and so now the disciples are all sort of fanning out, as it were, in a circle, and one guy suddenly who doesn't know anything about uh, Italian begins to speak in Italian. He doesn't know it. He doesn't even know what he's saying, but the people that are receiving are saying, hey, we've come from Rome, and we understand what you're saying. You're proclaiming the glories of God in our own language, and that happened over and over again in that particular event and also in the book of Acts. And again, most Bible scholars agree that this, these events that were actual human tongues, this event is connected back to Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel. 
So in Genesis chapter 11, men built a tower to make a great name for themselves, and God confused their languages. Now God's coming to make a great name for himself, and he's overcoming the one barrier that he put in place. He's now reversing the curse, as it were, of the tower to say, no, we don't need a tower built for you. We need a tower built for me. And now that that tower is being built by the work of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the languages are going to be uh, not a division point anymore. And if you do that, your church history, the Pentecostals, which began in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, they believe that the Holy Spirit was coming again in a sort of wave that had been uh, latent or quiet for some time. And their thought was when you're speaking in tongues, and this is how the Pentecostal movement began, was that, that you would speak a human language. And now this human language, was going to, the same thing is going to spread over the world. And this was the beginning of the near coming of Christ. So that was their first original thought. Speaking in other languages doesn't happen at every salvation event. So we know it's not normally occurring. Acts chapter 10, it happens. Acts chapter 19, actually the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus. And it says this, when Paul placed his hands on these people that are hearing the word of God, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So these events happen through Acts as a way to say the word of God is busting out of Jerusalem and is going to spread over the whole world. So now the big question as we turn to 1 Corinthians is whether the tongues that Paul had witnessed in Acts chapter 19 and was part of Acts chapter 2, is that the same thing he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? All these tongues that are talked about in Acts, all are human languages. They're just unknown to the speaker. Now you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and you have to ask yourself, is that the same thing or is that something different? And this is where scholars divide. Some people think it's the same thing. Some people think it's something different. And, of course, there's a lot of other options, a few of them. Yes, it's the same thing. Tongues in 1 Corinthians is speaking in in a human language unknown to the speaker. That's one option. No, tongues in 1 Corinthians is, a, is an ecstatic utterance, disconnected sounds. It's not meant for it to even be mimicking a human language. No, this is a third option. No, tongues is not a human language, but it's a heavenly language. Because in chapter 13, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So there's an actual Uh, angelic language that some people tap into and can speak. Or, no, this is not the final option, there's many more, but no, tongues is not a human language, but it's a private prayer language. And each of these positions have its strengths and weaknesses, but when I look at the text, and I try to get outside of an experience and just try to think about what I think the text says, I I think what makes most sense from the text is what Paul had witnessed in Acts chapter 19, that the Holy Spirit came and people spoke in tongues, human languages, and they prophesied is the same thing that's happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14. So it's it's not an ecstatic, it's not angelic, and it's not private. And some of the reasons I would think that, and of course this occupies books of information, 
but I'll say mine. And then as you come with your own experience and your own reading, you come to the Bible and see how we may think differently. One is Paul uses the same Greek word to describe all these events. Glossi It's where you would get the word glossary language. What does this language mean? And so he's using the same language and he could have used other words if he wanted to describe something that was ecstatic or disconnected sounds. That's a different kind of word. And this word that he uses always means either your physical tongue or it actually means a human language in every place. So I don't think it's something different here. I don't think it's a heavenly language, chapter 13, verse 1, because the whole context of these four chapters is is. Uh, or these three verses is one of exaggeration. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I think the whole idea is just, it's just uh, hyperbole. It's exaggeration to say, of course, this doesn't really happen. And so I don't really think it's uh, an angelic language. Finally, I don't think Paul is talking about private prayer here because the context of his instructions are about building up the church as you're gathered together. That's the whole point. When he says, now I'm turning my attention to these spiritual gifts, I'm turning my attention to these spiritual gifts that are used corporately for the worship of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So I don't think it's a private prayer language. One last question. So, then, is it possible that you could have a private prayer language? And the reason I ask this particular question, because I know many people who would say that they do have that gift. Or they would say it's a gift. When you read J.I. Packer, he uh, likens that to scat. If you know sort of the Louisiana blues, you know the Ella Fitzgerald, the They're saying words, but they're really disconnected to language, but it has some meaning for the person who's singing it. Or Don Carson refers it to free vocalization, which is really a longer way to say scat. Um, And when I I've not experienced this. But I know I have relatives, I have people that I know that say they have experienced that and it's a private thing. It's not something that creates division uh, and they say it brings them into some kind of sweet communion or fellowship with the Lord. And so my question is due to myself and you can hear my answer and agree or disagree. Is it possible to have a private prayer language? And my answer is, I guess it's possible I just wouldn't equate it with what's happening here. Does that make sense? A lot of times people say, well, I have this gift of tongues. And what they want to do is they want to say, it's like in 1 Corinthians 12. And I'd say, no, that's not what's happening in 1 Corinthians 12. Something different's happening in 1 Corinthians 12. And so I wouldn't call it tongues in that same sense. Okay. Well, I've really just created all kinds of questions here. I realize that it might be good to have a little Q&A, but we're running out of time. And uh, I think it would be good for you, like the Berean believer, to, to go home, 
to search the scriptures. I mean, we're, we won't, don't want to take my word as infallible. We want to take the word of God as infallible and think through these things because you have your own experiences and it's important to draw some conclusions on some of these issues. I want to close with just this passage that I preached on at the beginning of this series, also coming, not surprisingly, after Paul's discussion about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. See, I've been discussing all these issues that happen, but as I get to the close of the letter, I want to say, hey, guys, we know something's of first importance. And what is that? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. See, whatever the Holy Spirit's doing, he's got a first importance, and that is to point your heart and my heart towards Christ. And then I think the second outworking of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the like. So I don't think the Holy Spirit's introducing something that's going to immediately create divisiveness within the body. He's always pointing everyone back towards the cross. Let's pray together. Lord, these are um, some unusual subject matter that you have in your word. And I just want to readily say I I can be a poor receiver of what you've said. But we're all here trying to take a stand on the word of God, to trust in your word and not our word or our experience. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just uh, help us see our way through these issues as, as a church, as Paul's trying to help his church see their way through this, these issues. This Paul is trying to help this church see their way through these issues. As we walk through the issues of the church in this series, I, I ask for your um, divine blessing and peace on us all. In Jesus' name, amen.